So Wainamoinen convinced Louhi to send him back to Kalevala to speak with Seppo Umarainen. And when he finally arrived in Kalevala and gave his request to Seppo Umarainen, Ilmarainen refused. He refused to go to the gloomy and miserable north, the land of witches and man-eaters. But Vainamoinen was desperate to deliver Lohi's reward, and he tricked Seppo Ulmarainen into climbing a giant tree, and then, when Ilmarainen was at the top of the tree, Vainamoinen summoned a giant storm which, get this, the storm flung Seppo Ulmarainen from the top of the very tall tree all the way back north to Pohyula. Now, in Pohyula, Seppo Ulmarainen was welcomed and treated with amazing hospitality, and it seemed like everyone was so happy to have him there. And Lohi, the hag, even promised Seppo Ulmarainen the hand of her very beautiful daughter in marriage, if he was able to craft the Sampo. And with this, Seppel Ilmarainen agreed, and he declared that yes, of course I can create the Sampo, I am the most powerful smith in the world, I can accomplish anything. But this was easier said than done, and he tried and tried to forge the Sampo, but only succeeded in creating other artifacts which were beautiful in appearance but not so much in nature for example he created a beautiful crossbow but that crossbow was bloodthirsty and he created a shining plow but this plow it only ruined cultivated fields but after a long time at work Seppel Ilmarinen at long last was able to summon the forces necessary to create the Sampo, and he finally succeeded in doing so. The Sampo was finally forged, and it contained a grain mill, a salt mill, and a money mill, which would forever produce goods and wealth. Lohi was, of course, ecstatic to finally have the Sampo in her hands, and she happily accepted, and she locked it inside a mountain so that only she could use it. But remember that Lohi promised Seppel Ilmarinen the hand of her daughter in marriage if he was able to make the Sampo. So when Seppel Ilmarinen went to claim Lohi's daughter's hand in marriage, like Lohi had promised him, the maiden refused to marry Ilmarinen, and he ended up having to go back home to Kalevala without his bride. Now, of course, over time, the land of Pohyula prospered with their possession of the Sampo, but Ilmarinen and Vainamoinen, on the other hand, back home in Kalevala, they lived sad lives without any love or wealth. Vainamoinen was not happy with the fact that Pohyula got to thrive while they could not, and so, he suggested that the two of them venture back north to Pohyula to retrieve the Sampo, so that is exactly what they did. And with the help of the very good-looking Lemminkainen, they sailed back to Pohyula. And when they got there, Vainamoinen approached Lohi and requested that she give him half of the wealth that she got from the Sampo, or else they were going to steal it. And of course, Lohi was mad, so she summoned her army to fight the three of them, Seppel Ilmarinen, Vainamoinen, and Lemminkainen, but wait, Vainamoinen then played his magic harp called the Kantele, and this harp was magical for a reason. Everyone who heard it would fall into deep sleep. So when Vainamoinen played his magic harp, he sent all of Pohyula into deep sleep. The three men, after sending everyone to sleep, jumped at their chance, and they easily stole his magic harp 
sorry, they easily stole the Sampo, you know, because everyone was sleeping, and they escaped Bokula and began to sail back home to Kalevala. Now, Lemminkainen was so excited about their success, and he demanded that Vainamoinen sing for their triumph in stealing the Sampo from Pohjola. But Vainamoinen refused, and rightfully so. I guess you could say Vainamoinen didn't want to jinx it, and he was very wary and cautious of celebrating too early. But Lemminkainen could not handle his emotions, and he was so overwhelmed by his joy and excitement that after three days of sailing back home, when they were almost home, he began to sing in praise of their triumph. Now his voice was awful, and it was hideous, and it woke up a crane that was nearby. And the crane began to screech and screech and screech, and the loud screeching of the crane traveled all the way back to Pokula. And guess what? It woke up Lohi and her sleeping army. Now upon waking up, they realized what had happened, and the army immediately began to chase down Sepulmarainen, Vainamoinen, and Lemminkainen. Seeing that Lohi and her army were close on their tail, Vainamoinen raised a giant rock from the sea to destroy their ship. But this rock was no problem for Lohi, and she pretty much just transformed herself into an eagle and carried the army on her back, and she flew towards the ship of the three heroes. Now, approaching them, she grabbed the stampo from their ship with her talons, but... whoops! She accidentally dropped the sampo into the sea, and the sampo shattered into pieces, and it was lost forever in the sea. And that is the myth of the sampo. Actually, believe it or not, this epic from Finland was one of the stories which actually inspired J.R.R. Tolkien to write The Lord of the Rings. Pretty neat, huh? Alright, now, moving out of Finland, we are traveling to another part of the world, and that is Cambodia. This is the Cambodian myth of thunder, lightning, and rain. Okay, so this story starts a long time ago with a hermit named Lokta Moni Ese. Now, this hermit had three very promising students with a lot of potential, Moni Mekala, Rayam Eso, and Vora Chen. Moni Mekala was the goddess of the seas, Rayam Eso was a storm demon, and Vora Chen was the princely manifestation of the earth. Now, Lokta, the hermit, wanted to give a gift to his most promising student, and in order to determine who is the most promising student and who is the most deserving of his gift, he set up a competition. What was this competition, you ask? Whoever could bring a glass full of morning dew back to him first would win the gift from Lokta. Now, the students heard this, and they jumped up to get started. Now, Vora Chin and Riyame So went into the forest at dusk, and in order to fill their glass up, they collected the dew which was on every leaf and blade of grass that they found. But when they returned to Lokta to present to him their glass full of morning dew, they found Moni Mekala already sitting there with her full glass. You see, instead of gathering the water from every single leaf in the forest, Moni Mekala had just left her shawl out overnight, and in the morning, she just wrung out the water from her shawl into the glass and filled it up with morning dew. Now, Lokta loved all his students like a father, and he was proud of all of them, so he gave them each a gift from the dew that they each had collected. He gifted Rayame So with a diamond axe 
He gifted Warachan with a magic dagger, and he gifted Monimekala with an extraordinary crystal ball. Now, upon seeing what his peers had been gifted, Rayame so became jealous of Monimekala's crystal ball, and he decided that he wanted the crystal ball for himself. So, he tried to have a civil conversation with her, and he asked her if he could have the crystal ball. But she obviously rejected him. I mean, why would she give him her crystal ball, right? So he was like, okay, if she's not going to give it to me when I ask her nicely, then I am just going to have to steal it from her or take it by force. So Rayameso took off on his journey to find Monimekala and obtain her crystal ball. But on his way, he was stopped by Warachan. See, Warachan was a righteous prince, and he knew it was wrong for Rayameso to forcefully take what wasn't rightfully his. So Warachan tried to stop Rayameso, but Rayameso was determined, and he was fueled by his jealous rage towards Monimekala and her crystal ball, and he decided he was not going to go down without a fight. So, Rayameso and Warachan battled it out in the sky, but somehow Rayameso managed to get the upper hand, and he hurled Warachan out of the sky and against the side of a mountain. Rayameso was sure that he had killed Warachan, and so he continued his search of Monimekala until he finally found her. Now, when he found her, he demanded that she give him her crystal ball, even though she was the rightful owner of it. But the fearless Moni Mekala refused, and she flew up into the sky. Now, Rayameso followed her into the sky, and he demanded again that she give him the crystal ball. He said, give me the crystal ball. And guess what she said? Can you guess what her answer was? Nope. Her answer was no, she was not going to give him the crystal ball. And this was the last and final straw for Rayameso, and he began to furiously swing his diamond axe, but before he could, Monimekala threw her crystal ball high up into the air, and as it went up and up and up, from the crystal ball came powerful flashes of lightning, and this lightning blinded Rayameso. He was taken by so much surprise when he lost his eyesight, and the diamond axe, which he was furiously swinging, flew out of his hands. And as the diamond axe fell through the sky, it cut through the clouds so powerfully that it created deafening rolls of thunder. And when the thunder and lightning mixed, drops of rain fell from heaven. Now, Rayameso was blind and he had lost his diamond axe, and Moni Mekala was finally approaching him, but as she approached him, she remembered the kindness that was taught to her by her teacher, Lokta, and she decided to spare Rehameso from her wrath, and she flew away. How considerate. <laughs> and the rain, which fell from the sky, fell on the dead body of Warachin, who Rehameso, if you remember, had killed in battle. And Warachan was brought back to life by the rain, as the thunder, lightning, and rain continued. And that is the Cambodian myth of lightning, thunder, and rain. I absolutely love this story because not only is it so entertaining, it gives a really interesting explanation to the extreme weather patterns that we have on Earth, which I think is so cool. Okay, that myth was from Cambodia. The next one is from Egypt. This is the myth of the death of Osiris. Okay, before we begin, there's a little bit of a family structure that is important to understand. So in this story, there are four siblings. We have Set, Neftis, Osiris, and Isis. Now, Set and Neftis are married to each other, and Osiris and Isis are married to each other, and the four of them together are siblings. It can get a little confusing, so 
It's important to understand that beforehand. All right, our story starts with a feast, a huge feast, like the biggest in Egypt. And this feast was being thrown by Set, the Egyptian god of war, chaos, and storms, and his wife and sister, the goddess Nephthys. Now, Set and Nephthys went above and beyond for this feast. They decorated an extravagant hall, had lots of food, and even more guests. Guests who were gods, goddesses, all kinds of deities and monarchs, and the most important guest in our story was their brother, Osiris, the powerful god who ruled all of Egypt and had let Egypt prosper and thrive. Now, in the middle of the banquet hall during the feast, there was a beautiful wooden chest right in the middle. Why was there a random chest in the middle of the feast? I'm about to tell you. So, as the party goes on, Set announced that there would be a game, or a competition of sorts. Whoever, out of all the guests there at the feast, could fit into the wooden chest perfectly, they could have the beautiful chest as a gift. So all of the guests gave it a try, and tried to get in the chest and fit perfectly. They tried to shove themselves into the grooves so they could fit, but guess what? No one did. No one fit in the chest except for one person. When it was Osiris's turn, remember Osiris is the brother of Set and Nephthys, Osiris got into the chest and he fit perfectly. But before any of the guests could even comprehend that Osiris had won the game, Set, his brother, jumped up and slammed the lid down on top of the chest with Osiris still inside, and he sealed it shut. And then, for good measure, he tossed the chest into the Nile. Here's the thing. Set's game that he announced to everyone was never really a game for him. In fact, the wooden chest was never even a chest. It was a coffin. Set had the coffin built specifically for his brother Osiris, and he used the game as a way of tricking his brother and then trapping him inside the coffin. Obviously, Osiris was the perfect fit for this so-called chest, because the chest was literally built for him. You see, Set was jealous of his brother's success and power, and so he used the party and the game to lure his brother into a trap and lock him away so that Set could take Osiris's place as the ruler of Egypt. Wow, the lengths that some people go to. Um, anyways, what happened to Osiris and his coffin? Well, since Set dumped Osiris's coffin into the Nile, it drifted out to sea, and it drifted for many days until the coffin finally washed up on the shores of Byblos, in present-day Lebanon, for reference. And once the coffin washed ashore in Byblos, a giant cedar tree grew around the coffin. Now, because Osiris was still inside the coffin, his essence gave the tree a divine aura, which the king of Byblos noticed, and when he noticed that there was something special about the tree, he ordered that the tree was cut down and brought back to his place. The whole time, though, the king had no idea that Egypt's most powerful god and king, Osiris, was still inside the tree. Now, back in Egypt, Set was ecstatic, because he thought that he had finally defeated his brother Osiris, but he forgot about his sisters, Nephthys and Isis. Recall that Nephthys, Osiris, Isis, and Set were siblings. Set and Nephthys were married, Osiris and Isis were married. So the goddess Isis, being married to Osiris, was set upon finding him, and she approached her sister, also Set's wife, Nephthys, and enlisted her help to find Osiris behind Set's back without him knowing. 
So the two sisters, Naphtes and Isis, transformed into falcons and set out in search of Osiris and his coffin. They found some children who had seen the coffin float by, and the children pointed the two sisters towards Byblos. When they got to Byblos, Isis again transformed herself into a new disguise and approached the palace. Now, because Isis was in a disguise, she was able to charm the queen, so much so that the queen entrusted her baby son with Isis, who was in disguise. Now Isis took the queen's baby and decided to make him immortal by bathing him in flame. But the queen found them, and she was horrified. So Isis took this as an opportunity to get rid of her disguise, and she revealed herself as the powerful goddess Isis. Having revealed herself, she demanded the tree which Osiris had been in, but when she cut open the tree and opened Osiris's coffin, she found that Osiris was dun 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 dead. He was dead inside of the coffin, and Isis was devastated. So she carried his body back to Egypt and hid it in a swamp, and she was determined to bring her husband back to life. So she set off in search of a way to resurrect Osiris. But there's another twist. While she was gone, Set found the body of Osiris, and he cut it into many pieces and scattered the pieces of Osiris's body all over Egypt. And when Isis found out what Set had done, she was still determined, and she searched all over Egypt for every body part of Osiris, and one by one, she found all the body parts in every part of Egypt, except for one. Except for one body part, which had been eaten by a fish. So she had no way of ever getting the body part back. So she had to make do with what she had, and with the body parts she had, Isis reconstructed her husband, Osiris. But here's the thing. Without his missing body part, Osiris could not remain among the living. He could not return to his old position as ruler of Egypt, because he had to be living, and he wasn't technically living while he was missing a body part. Instead, Osiris had to settle for ruling over Duat, the Egyptian realm of the dead. But before he left for Duat, Osiris and Isis conceived a child who would one day avenge Osiris, and this child was... Can you guess who? It was Horus, the falcon-headed god. And that is the tale of the death of Osiris. Honestly, my favorite thing about this story is the trickery and the elaborate scheme which is set. I just think it is so interesting to see how the whole thing plays out. Anyways, that was an Egyptian myth, but now we go to India with this myth from Hindu mythology. This is the myth of Kali, the goddess of death, and Mahishasura, the demon king. Our story starts with the great demon king Mahishasura, and he was someone who was incredibly evil-natured and hungry for power. Now Mahishasura wanted to be the greatest, so he decided to challenge the gods and assemble an army to declare himself the lord of heaven and the ruler of the universe. Now, word of Mahishasura's plan quickly got around, and it reached the ears of Lord Vishnu, who was one of the members of the Trimurti. Now, for reference, the Trimurti is composed of three powerful gods who, together, maintain the balance of the universe. Brahma is the god of creation, or the creator of the universe. Vishnu 
is the god of preservation, or the protector of the universe, and Shiva, who will appear in our story later on, is the god of destruction, also known as the destroyer, and he is the one who transforms the universe. Now, when Vishnu hears that Mahishasura plans to challenge the gods in order to become the supreme ruler of the universe, he is obviously pretty mad. Like, he's thinking, wow, the audacity of this guy. So the members of the Trimurti, Vishnu, Shiva, and Brahma, along with other gods and goddesses, assemble to create the ultimate weapon to battle against Mahishasura. And guess what this weapon was? Can you guess? Their ultimate weapon was a woman. It was a woman, and this woman was Gali, the mother goddess, the goddess of death. All the gods and goddesses contributed their power to manifest Kali, and when she was formed, all the immortals worshipped her and gave her many gifts to make her incredibly powerful. Shiva, the god of destruction, gave her a trident. Vishnu, the god of preservation, gave her a discus. Indra, the god of thunder, lightning, and storms, also the king of gods, gave her a thunderbolt. Surya, the sun god, bestowed his sun rays on the pores of her skin. And Varuna, the god of the ocean, gave her a divine crest jewel, beautiful earrings, ornate bracelets, and a garland of lotus flowers. And with her manifestation, the gods sent her to the battlefield to single-handedly fight Mahishasura and his army of demons. When Kali got to the battlefield, Mahishasura and his army of demons immediately attacked her with all kinds of weapons, arrows, clubs, spears, even just plain old brute violence. But, nope, Kali was completely unfazed. She was like, come on, is that all you got? And let me tell you, this battlefield was complete and utter chaos. I mean, there were demons everywhere. Battle cries, drums beating, conches blowing. It was really a sight to see. But Gali was fearless. In fact, she was actually somewhat amused with the efforts of the demon army to take her down. She easily blazed through the demons. She picked up dozens at a time with her four arms and killed them with her sword. She crushed demons with her mace. I mean, she was ruthless. She was impossible to face and not die in the process until the demon Raktabija approached her. Now, this was a particularly troublesome demon who was particularly hard to kill because every time a drop of his blood fell and touched the ground, a clone of Raktabija would appear from that drop of blood. So when Kali tried to kill him, she soon found herself facing a whole army of Raktabija and his clones. You see, Raktabija thought he was being clever, and he thought he could outwit Kali, but obviously he didn't. Kali found a way around his plan, and she ended up picking each of his clones off the ground and lifting them high into the air to keep their blood from falling to the ground. And she killed them and drank all of their blood before it could even reach the ground. And after she killed Raktabija's clones, she approached Raktabija and finished him off. Now, Raktabija was not the only one who tried to trick Kali into defeat. Many demons tried to confuse Kali with their powers by changing their form and color or by putting on disguises, but she saw right through their trickery every time, and she killed them easily. And soon, Kali had defeated the majority of Mahishasura's army, and all around her on the battlefield laid the remains of thousands of demons. And finally, the mastermind himself, Mahishasura, 
approached Gali. Now, Mahishasura, the demon king, saw his army of thousands of demons completely devastated and in ruins because of one goddess, Gali, and boy was he mad. So Mahishasura transformed and took the shape of a giant buffalo and charged towards Kali, and they fought savagely. Both Mahishasura and Kali were at each other's throats. Mahishasura showered her with arrows. He threw discuses at her. He beat her with clubs and maces, but this was nothing for Kali, and with one strike, Kali raised her hand and finished him off with her spear. Now, Kali had single-handedly defeated Mahishasura, the vile demon king, and his entire army of demons by herself, and she stood there in the middle of the ravaged battlefield, completely surrounded by corpses and carnage, and there was nothing left for her to fight, because she had defeated everyone. But at that point, Gali was still bloodthirsty, and she was absolutely consumed by her bloodlust. So she went on a rampage and slaughtered every living thing she could get her hands on. I mean, she was literally leaving a trail of death behind her. Now, the gods were celebrating her victory. I mean, they had created and sent Gali to the battlefield in order to fight and defeat Mahishasura and his army of demons, and that's exactly what she did. So the gods were ecstatic, and they were celebrating, and they were so happy about her victory, but then they saw what was happening, and they became fearful. They weren't sure how to stop Kali's bloodthirsty rampage, but then they had an idea. They sent Shiva, Kali's husband, who if you remember was the god of destruction, to approach Kali, and that's what he did. Shiva approached Kali, and he attempted to grab her attention, and it worked. Kali noticed him, but she was so consumed by her bloodlust that she wasn't able to recognize him as her husband. She didn't see that it was Shiva, her husband, and she was about to kill him as well. She was about to bring down her sword and kill him, but she suddenly snapped out of it right before she killed him, and she saw her husband under her feet, who she was about to kill, and she snapped out of it, and her destruction finally came to an end, and Kali, the goddess of death, reverted into a more calm and docile version of a goddess. Now, this story is very interesting, because Kali's carnage is actually represented in how she is depicted in pictures. See, Kali is always seen with a garland of demon skulls around her neck, and she is wearing a skirt of their severed arms around her waist, and she's also always drenched in the blood of the demons she killed in this battle, and in her hand she holds the head of the demon Raktabija who she killed. If you remember, Raktabija was the demon with all the clones, and she is always depicted as standing on her husband Shiva, which is a depiction of the scene where she is right about to kill him and she doesn't recognize him. Anyways, that was the story of Kali, the goddess of death, and Mahishasura, the demon king. Now, for our last story, we are moving on from India and Hindu mythology. The next story is a Native American myth. I mean, it only seems right to end with something Native American, right? Considering we do live in the Americas. Alright, this is the myth of the Coyote and the Columbia. Now, this story is from the Sahaptan people, who traditionally lived in the states of Oregon and Washington. The wonderful thing about most Native American stories and legends is that they all generally tend to have some sort of lesson or moral in them. So, 
be on the lookout for what the moral might be in this one as you listen. Okay, so the main character in our story is, believe it or not, a coyote. Now our story takes place on an incredibly hot day. Now I don't know about you, but I hate hot days and weather, and just like me, this coyote was miserable in the hot weather that day. Now as the day went on, it only got hotter and hotter outside, and soon enough, the coyote just could not take it anymore. So in order to save himself from the hot weather, the coyote wished for a cloud to appear in the sky. He said, let there be a cloud in the sky. And guess what? A cloud appeared in the sky. And with it, it brought some shade from the hot sun, but only a little bit. And the coyote was still too hot. So he wished for more clouds. Let there be more clouds. And guess what? Some more clouds appeared and gave the coyote more shade from the hot sun. But, well, this was still not enough reprieve for the coyote. And so the coyote wished for rain to fall from the clouds, and you got it. Rain began to fall from the clouds, and the cool water helped cool down the coyote. But this still wasn't enough, and the coyote said, I want more rain. So the rain became a heavy downpour of water. But our coyote was still not happy and he wanted more so he wished for a stream to walk in he said i want a stream to walk in and cool off my feet and magically a stream came pouring down from the rain for the coyote to walk in but guess what the coyote was still not happy and he wanted more water to cool himself down so he wished for more water and said, let there be more water, the stream should be deeper. And his wish came true, but not in the way the coyote was expecting. See, the creek became a huge, swirling, powerful river, and it grabbed the coyote, and the coyote got swept up in the huge river over and over again, almost drowning in the process. And just as he was about to drown and die, he washed up on a bank far away. And this gigantic river, which had almost drowned the coyote, became known as a river which is probably very familiar to most of you. And that river is the Columbia River. And that is the Sahaptan legend of the coyote and the Columbia. Did you pick up on what the moral was from this legend? The point of the story is to warn people about being too greedy and to be careful what you wish for. If you want everything and are hungry for everything, things just might not end up working out well for you in the long run, kind of much like the coyote in the story. And with that Sahaptan story of the coyote and the Columbia, we end this series of myths from around the world. I am always so fascinated by myths, especially because they come from so many different parts of the world, and they all have something different to offer. I know that this small sneak peek into the world of mythology has me hooked, and I for sure am going to be looking into more stories. And I sincerely hope you do as well, because Stories like these can be so insightful, and they give such an interesting perspective of the world. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed listening to these myths from around the world. Again, this is Lavanya from the Cable Youth Collective. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Lavanya. I'm not going to tell you what's next. You figure it out yourself.
interview courtesy of Chance. They had informed me that, unfortunately, the guest's audio wasn't properly recorded, and as such, they've chosen to summarize the interview instead. Enjoy. Hello, Kebu. So, uh, I know you probably just heard me say that I'd be interviewing Demon Mama, and hey, I did. Um, there were some technical difficulties, mainly due to my immense intelligence as your favorite Vembo. Uh, where none of her audio got recorded on my end. So, uh, instead of playing the interview that happened, which would only have just what I said in it, as much as I know you'd love to hear just me talking in a one-sided conversation, um, I'll just read the notes of what happened. So, we had uh, me and Demon Mama, who's a lefty YouTuber, um, had lots of... YouTuber and streamer, I should say, had a really deep and strong discussion about... Uh, being transgender, about being non-binary, and about neo-pronouns. Uh, we talked a lot about the distinctions between gender and sex, how gender is more so these societal prescriptions based on uh, what roles you get and such, and how sex is your actual biology. Um, how gender can be presentation-wise. For example, uh, if a soldier, a big masculine soldier, uh, gets his genitals torn off or ripped off or blown off or whatever, he'll still be a man. If an intersex person is on in, intersex in one way or another, they still are put into the gender of one category or another, usually. Gender is just these societal prescriptions. Sex is a biological uh, phenomenon, and it's not binary, it's bimodal, which means there are mostly two sides of it, but there are many outliers, as many as 1.7% of the population, according to Amnesty International. When we're talking about gender, we're talking about the societal prescriptions. We talked about neopronouns. Neopronouns are a way to sort of change some of the words we use and or bring in new words that are more affirming to people, whether it be for individual affirmation, whether it be for aesthetic reasons, or so on. A lot of the times, uh, using neo-pronouns can be an act of rebellion against the societal prescriptions we're given, based off of what's between our legs, or sometimes what our chromosomal buildup is, even though no one runs around with a chromosomal microscope. Some of these pronouns can be zizir, fei-fair, and so on. The thing is, neo-pronouns aren't something that have existed just recently, they've existed for a long time. Let me open my notes here. Uh, Neo-pronouns have existed for as long as, like, 300, 400 years. In the 18th and 19th centuries, neo-pronouns such as uh, au, ni, er, and v have been used. Von was a very, very popular neo-pronoun in the sense that it was literally adopted in the second edition of the Webster's Dictionary. Now, neo-pronouns are taking up a huge space in popular discourse. We talked about how the internet kind of atomizes people in a lot of the ways, and a lot of uh, discourse is fear-mongering and doesn't have a lot of nuance provided to it. When neo-pronouns are actually very nuanced and interesting discussion and interesting topic. We talked about how a lot of the time neo-pronouns are an easy target because they're seen as this thing that's been on Tumblr. All the time and when people see tumblr they think of quote-unquote cringe culture and about how the far right especially has sort of taken these as an easy target and this is 
started uh, seeping into our everyday lives, this kind of um, what I called the culture of degeneracy. And I don't mean our culture being degenerate. That's kind of a fashy thing to say. I mean the obsession with degeneracy in our culture of calling things degenerate. For example, um, we talked about a lot of the anti-trans bills that have been passed. For example, an anti-gay bills. In the Pennsylvania House just yesterday, they passed a law upholding the fact that homosexuality is seen as obscene in Pennsylvania state law. We talked about the attempted legalizations of torture, or for a more hand-washed term, conversion therapy for gay people. We talked about how there are signs, er, and uh, trans people. We talked about how there are signs that are warning cisgender customers in Tennessee that are state mandated uh, to, to warn cisgender customers that there may be trans people lurking here. It's scary. We talked about that and how this culture of this obsession of degeneracy has sort of obsession with the label of degeneracy has um sort of led to a um focus on this and sort of a disproportionate amount of time being focused on it. Uh we also talked about how the attack of neo pronouns kind of uh ties in with the one joke that uh, right-wingers have. The attack helicopter joke. Oh, I identify as an attack helicopter. I identify as an M1 Abrams. It's, it's just an argument out of absurdum. And it ties in with that because they kind of see it as an easy target, especially people on Tumblr. Which, uh, we had a really interesting discussion also about communication and about how people who use neopronouns don't really use neopronouns all the time in every place because they know a lot of the times they won't be accepted. They'll usually just use it in certain friend groups, in certain spaces, and that's okay. They're communicating with those people and having affirmations, mutual affirmations with those people. Communication isn't supposed to be something where you say one thing and communicate with everyone at the same time, like social media has kind of led us to believe. It's interacting with individual people. And when people look at Tumblr, where a lot of neo-pronoun usage has been popularized and developed with the speed of information that we have right now, people are getting this slice into a lot of teenagers' minds who are trying to experience new things and experiment with new things. And it kind of makes it really easy for them to develop these arguments ad absurdum without thinking of any of the nuance behind neo-pronouns. We talked about how language is a flexible thing. New words are always added, new words are sometimes removed. There was a lot of outrage when twerk was added to the dictionary. There's some discussion on whether pog should be added to the dictionary in the sense of pog champ, originating from uh, Twitch culture. It means like something awesome or something cool. Then we moved on to talking about non-binary people. Non-binary people have existed for all of human history. Trans people in general have existed for all of human history. And we talked about how the idea of a gender binary in at least the United States is a colonial concept. We talked about how uh, the blanket term for the gender systems of Native American tribes is two-spirit. This is a reductive term. We talked about how there's numerous different gender systems across the world. We talked about how the second largest country to ever exist, India, legally recognizes a third gender, a third set of societal prescriptions. We also talked about how, uh, for example, in anthropology, gender studies, uh, anthropological gender studies is a large field of study because every society interacts with gender in a different, interesting way. We talked also about how being non-binary isn't a third gender, and we also weighed in on the, uh, the discourse on whether NB, E-N-B-Y, should be used as a term for non-binary people. We talked about how it might be a good shorthand sometimes but it's usually reinforcing of the idea of changing things to a gender trinary as opposed to a binary when the idea of non-binary is just a compass that encompasses everything that's not one or zero it could be three it could be x it could be arizona iced tea it could be anything that doesn't fit into this one or zero right or this masculine or feminine this male or female um, and we talked about how it shouldn't be a third gender, although third genders, again, are part of, like, they are non-binary, but trying to fi make non-binary itself a third gender isn't a good thing. Uh, we also had a really interesting conversation about what we could do. 
because of all this anti-trans legislation, all this anti-trans discourse we see about how the far right especially are focusing on trans people and trying to roll back social progress we've made. And like I mentioned before in a previous piece a couple months ago, there were literally FBI lists of suspected homosexuals. Professors lost tenure. They would perform sweet street sweeps to see if gay or trans people were there. They would raid gay bars and they would perform forced genital examinations of women there. And if they had a penis, they would be locked up. That again is that kind of culture of degeneracy that I was talking about. The conservative groups are trying to move back to that world because they don't want to think of a world where academia and the numerous uh, academic studies and proofs of trans existence, they, they don't want to live in a world where that's real. We talked about how a lot of the fear-mongering about trans healthcare is patently wrong. The idea that children getting trans healthcare are getting a knife taken to their genitals a week after they put on their mom's bra or whatever, right? No. We talked about how uh, children transitioning is a social thing first. They'll maybe go by a new name, have a different pronoun. And sometimes they'll go on hormone blockers which are completely safe, completely reversible, and we have been using them for cisgender people for over 40 years. And that's the extent of what children transitioning is. We talked about a lot of the um, issues in the medical community about how they use a binary filing system, which can lead to a lot of messiness. Where, for example, um, you're either male or female. I talked about how my hospital uses um, male, female, male to female and female to male, but they don't have any non-binary distinctions. This might not be as messy as the full-on trans erasure uh, part of it, but it still is an interesting conversation to be had, and we had a really interesting conversation about it. And then we were going to talk about xenogenders and neurodivergence, but we ended up talking instead about what we could do to sort of make the situation better. We talked about combating the ignorance surrounding trans people and non-binary people. We talked about how the number one thing you can do as a layperson is to learn. There's lots of fantastic resources, like Demon Mama herself. You can find her website, uh, her website demonmama.com. You can find all of her social media links there. Fantastic content creator. I really wish I could have had the, uh, her audio of the interview up, but alas, uh, I'm not intelligent. We also talked about how there are a lot of queer resources online and in person. For example, in streams or on social media, you can talk to some queer, queer people who offer um, talking about themselves and offer their experiences, and that can help you understand a lot of what they deal with. We also talked about queer resource centers. For example, in universities, like at Portland Community College, where I went, or Portland State University, there are queer resource centers run and operated by queer people. You can go there, hang out, talk to them, they'll give you information, and also you'll actually get to interact face to face. And once you actually see that we're humans, you won't have the sense of otherness, and you'll start falling prey to this fear-mongering by conservatives less and less. And we also talked about third-party queer resource centers, which are uh, a large uh, there are many amounts of them here in Portland, up in Seattle where Demon Mama lives, and how their entire jobs, they're paid to provide resources to queer people and to allies. And if you want to learn more, again, there's loads of them. Just search Queer Resource Center Portland and you'll find it. We talked about how uh, in the DSM-5, for example, again talking about transitioning, how it takes six months at a minimum to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria a disorder that uh, many trans people su uh, suffer from, although you don't need it to be trans. And it, it, if you have gender dysphoria, then you would be able to be assigned hormones, prescribed hormones. But if you don't have those six months, it'll take longer. And that's even longer for children, by the way, where there'll be numerous medical diagnoses, re required numerous psychiatrists and psychologists involved, numerous medical doctors involved. And... We also talked about how uh, next month 
Demon Mom has a fantastic, fantastic series of streams uh, set up for Pride Month. She's going to do, be doing research streams into the parallels of Jewish history and trans history. She's going to be, for example, talking about uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, who is a Jewish doctor at the Institute of Sexual Studies in Germany, uh, who did studies on gay and trans people in Germany and had all of his books burned by the Nazis. I believe it was in 1933 or 34. She's going to do a lot of stuff talking about the history of trans people, about the history of Stonewall, the history of drag, the history of ballroom. She's going to do lots of interesting stuff, and you can find that on demonmama.com. When, whenever she live streams and all her social media is going to be there. She was a fantastic person to talk to. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Again, I'm really sorry that there were technical difficulties this time. Um... If you want to hear her again, I'm going to be interviewing her again sometime soon. I'll make sure to get a promo set up for that. It'll probably not be during a youth collective slot. It'll just be a slot that I'm going to try to find in syndicated time. Uh, but yeah, so that is demonmama.com for her. And if you want to find me, Chance, you can find me uh, at Chance on the air on all social media. If you find me on Twitter, all my links will be there. Uh, on YouTube, I'm Chance on the air. Uh, you can hear content like what you just heard before or content like you just heard right now or even more stuff because they do lots of cool stuff yeah so uh, demonmama.com and chance on the air for her and I uh, thank you for listening again I'm really sorry for the technical difficulties and I hope you enjoy youth day everybody stay funky thank you very much chance shifting gears a little bit we're exploring a piece from a previous show in the underground's history Specifically, it'd be the April 2019 episode of Interhaven. If you're not familiar, Interhaven was the Youth Collective's very own serialized radio drama. It was created by longtime Youth Collective contributor Maeve, and given how much fun all of us had working on it, we wanted to take a look back at it for this Youth Day. Enjoy. Good evening, friends and enemies, and welcome to the Interhaven Weekly Informer. Today's broadcast is brought to you by Universicorp. The Bureau's own Interhaven Intelligence Agency has launched an investigation on the disruption of last week's broadcast. Unfortunately, they have not yet been able to trace the source of the signal directly, but have determined that the disruption was not a hoax, but in fact a loyalist attempt to hijack our broadcast. Citizens, this is your weekly reminder. Loyalists and their ideologies are highly dangerous. The sect of their rogue organization responsible for last week's incident has been confirmed to be the same one that has been sending scavenging parties into the territory surrounding our great city. The heightened security measures imposed last week are being upheld until further notice. Citizens are encouraged to limit their trips to the city's outskirts and avoid leaving the city at all if possible. It's Aldergate's year to host the Festival of Unity. Citizens of Interhaven, Verdict Point, Redemption, and Direfall are all encouraged to attend. The Festival of Unity is an important cultural event, an annual celebration of the end of the Great War. In honor of the Festival of Unity, your community representative will be retelling the history of the Great War, as well as the legend of Dirk Evanson. Hello, Interhaven. I'm Equinox, your community representative. It's time for the story of the Great War. Don't worry, parents. Our retelling is factually accurate and kid-safe. This is your opportunity to get your little ones acquainted with our history before the festival. What we now call the Great War in casual conversation was often called the Silence War in its own time. The Silence War started almost 200 years ago, back when there were mega-regions called countries. These countries each belonged to their own regions and had their own rules and languages and ideas about what was right and wrong. Some countries were huge, with over a million people living in them. Back then, no one could agree on right and wrong, and because of this, the country's governing bodies were all very suspicious of each other.